Hey everybody, welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. Hey, this is Ryan Parker. And we are here to discuss Rectify 209 as we work our way through all 30 episodes of this really amazing award-winning show. Ryan, dude, <laughs> there, there have been some intense scenes in the, you know, we're co- coming toward the end. We're almost at the halfway point. We will be next week. Um, there have been some intense scenes in the first two seasons of Rectify, but the, but the, but the scene in the bedroom of Teddy where and you're Tony, going. holy, I'm going, I'm going there right off the bat, baby. I tell you, that we're, scene is you're diving so in. intense. Like it, what's going to happen is great acting, great writing, great background like spooky music when teddy breaks down after tawny leaves and then i think don't go don't go to a hotel and call daniel don't go to a hotel and call daniel mm-hmm. and then and she what goes does to she a hotel, do drinks half she a called. bottle of white wine and calls daniel <laughs> oh my gosh man what a scene i knew you were gonna go right just right for the jugular I leaned over to Amy yesterday while we were watching it. And after that scene ended, kissed her on the cheek. I said, no, <laughs> I said, romantic. I said, um, that felt a little melodramatic to me. <laughs> really? So now hold on, hold on. Okay. Interesting. Uh, listen, if I'm watching a show and I'm two seasons in and that's the first semi negative reaction i've had to virtually anything about the series you know we're dealing with some incredible storytelling acting and all that and i agree with you the acting was phenomenal uh clay carl i mean he's just he's a real talent yeah i I don't know man it just there was something about some of the stuff but you know what amy looked at me and said i couldn't disagree more she was like i actually feel bad for teddy right now i'm with amy and I'm with Amy. I'm with Amy because listen. I I was like, first of all, something. This is going to be hard to articulate, but I do. I did feel sympathetic for Tawny in some ways because I. It's like she doesn't want to love Daniel, and I don't even think it's Daniel she loves. I think it's I think it's an idea that she loves, or something about Daniel being. Um, so mysterious, well-read, thoughtful. Like Daniel is everything that Teddy is not. He's also dangerous, you know. But I also, um, like Amy, I really felt for Teddy because I've also had, I mean, years, years, years ago, but like I've had romantic partners say to me, I've fallen in love with someone else. I'm leaving you for someone else. And like my very first girlfriend did that to me. I vividly remember the pain, vividly remember the tears when she called me at college. We had, you know, been high school sweethearts, went to different colleges. And I remember her calling me freshman fall and basically telling me that she'd gone out with another guy over the weekend, kissed him, and she was, you know, falling for him. And we needed to take a break, quote unquote. Now we were 18 or whatever, but I remembered that feeling. And when I saw Clayne Crawford conjure up those tears, 
it was like that dude went deep. So he went somewhere deep, that actor, when he started crying after Tawny left the room. The way he held it back till she left the room and didn't show any vulnerability. And then she left. And oh my gosh. And she kept saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't do that. And I want to be like, what the hell can't you do anymore? like love some a guy who's not your husband like what is it you can't do anymore i i just thought it was a great scene and and um i personally didn't think it was over the top but i i did like i'm admitting had some kind of a personal you know existential connection to everything i was seeing notice i said i felt it was a little melodramatic i didn't feel like it uh it ruined the episode for me i agree that clayne crawford that's one of the best scenes of his uh involvement in the show one of his best performances you actually i actually felt like i was kind of losing my breath you know when she walks out of the mm-hmm. room and he's trying to he's struggling to breathe mm-hmm. i actually did feel that i i felt it was very the the music choice the the score was very intriguing to me because it almost felt like supernatural mm-hmm. or kind of fantastical. It was just a, it was an interesting choice. It was a weird choice. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what you made of that because I couldn't, it felt like to me, it made the whole process very surreal. Yeah, it was, a. it was, it was maybe a time and I could see where you're coming from. I mean, it was maybe a tiny bit Twin Peaks ish or something. That's, in yeah, the music, yeah. In the yeah, music in, in that point, but I will say that uh, not only was there a great song on there uh, on the episode that we already mentioned in last week's podcast from Low, a band out of Duluth, Minnesota, called Silver Rider, and because their album title was the title of of the of the last episode but there were two or three other times in this episode where i uh, opened my phone and shazammed the songs uh, which is pretty you know cuz i'm like dang these are good songs and you know there is a, a maybe i've mentioned this before but there is a playlist on spotify with all the music from rectify if anybody you know well, I I've downloaded. We should it remind and, me, and I'll put a really I'll put a link. Yeah, we should add music. that as a link. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, I'll send that to you. So we've got this this really it it feels like almost a terminal exchange between Tawny and Teddy, but that's really built on top of the the tragedy of her miscarriage, mm-hmm. and and so much of this division. Uh, and so much of the antagonism on the part of Teddy is from her. He is misperceiving maybe her uh, grief or lack thereof about her miscarriage. And then yeah. his brain immediately goes back to Daniel. He can't get, he's got Daniel on the brain and understandably so for a couple of reasons, but also who is this man to tell this woman how to grieve the loss of her child and again, yet another reason why Teddy shouldn't have broken the news when they did. But I found it, I found her performance as well uh, in that first half of the episode. If, you know, if Teddy's really 
kind of stealing the show in that bedroom scene. You know, when Tawny learns about her miscarriage, you know, basically throughout the first half of this episode, Adelaide Clemens is is kind of otherworldly uh, in her delivery and her portrayal of that experience. I mean, there's this, it's almost like she's floating through each scene that she's in. And I, I found, yeah. I found it quite compelling. Uh, and of course, when you build up, she's, it, you don't get the sense early on. And I just, I may be misreading this, but I, I didn't get the sense in the first half of the episode that Daniel was on her mind at all. Like when, you know, especially she's sitting on the bed, she's looking at schools yeah. and the, her, you know, Adelaide's delivery, the writing, it does feel like, Teddy's accusations about her longing for Daniel kind of hit her out of left field. Like that's just unfair to her that, that well, that's not where she is in the moment. Am I, am I yeah, not, but she doesn't Here's the thing, Ryan. I, yeah. I thought the same thing, but then she doesn't deny it. I mean, what's weird is, okay. There's, if you trace this trail of scenes of she's in the doctor's office, the doctor delivers the news in a kind of sterile forensic way, you know, like, well, this is pretty common and you're going to have some spotting. Not like, are you okay? She kind of looks like she's going into shock. Then Teddy gets home. She's baked cookies. She tells him again, she's almost without emotion. And he finally comes home that night after having a bad day at work because some guy isn't paying for his rims by the way, Tony, can we just say that maybe people who rent rims aren't like the most financially sound individuals <laughs> on the right? Right. So Teddy decides to reap repo them on his own, and it's funny because my my grandfather was a a Ford dealer in the '30s through the '80s, uh, '70s, I guess he probably retired, and. I, he had this one very famous story where a guy, famous, I mean, for him, he just told it in the family a lot, where a guy had stopped making payments on the, the car that he'd purchased from my grandfather, and they tracked him down to North Dakota, and my grandpa... <laughs> My grandpa drove to North Dakota, which is prop was probably a 10 or 12-hour drive, and got there in the middle of the night he had my grandma with him and he made my grandma get out of the car. Cause of course he had a key back in the day, you know, he had a key for this car that he'd sold to the guy and he made my grandma get out of his car, get into that guy's car, start it up. And then they drove back to Minnesota. He repoed the car on his own with my grandma. <laughs> this is a, this is a Coen brothers movie somewhere yeah. in there. So. I know. Isn't that funny? See, I mean, the, yeah. really funny, but, um, but to, Tony, back to the, back to that scene that you mentioned when Teddy comes home from work, you know what? I think part of part of what Tawny might be tired of and that she can't do anymore is taking care of Teddy. I mean, this is a woman who's received some fairly devastating news. And even though it may be common, hasn't happened to her. But yet yeah. she's got to bake cookies and pour this man the biggest glass of milk you've ever seen, which first off, who's drinking, what adult is drinking a glass of milk that big? <laughs> but she's got to mother this guy and like she can't even be in her own feelings that day because she's got to worry about how Teddy's going to react to the situation. At least that's the way 
I saw that scene and maybe, maybe we'll see, but maybe that's what she's tired of. Like, boy, I had, be different, her, right? yeah, I had a very different take on that scene. I thought that she, she, I thought she baked the cookies. It was such a weird response. And I think Teddy put two and two together. And when, cause when he confronts her in the bedroom later that day, and basically says, you're happy that you don't, you, you were never, like, you were never even happy to be pregnant. And now you're shedding no tears over the miscarriage of our child. You wish it were Daniel's child, don't you? And she says, I can't do this anymore. I can't do it. She's, she never once denies it. This is the thing, That's man. True. She never denies what Teddy's calling her on. He, I think he's put the jigsaw puzzle together and calls her out on it. and. She, dude, I mean, she she ends up going to the hotel and calling Daniel and wanting to dance with. And this episode ends with them, the, the two of them dancing. And we'll, I guess we'll find out in 210 if anything came of that. But holy mackerel, I, I really do feel sympathetic toward Teddy. I don't feel like she's taking care of Teddy. I think, and, and again, this, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, admit my gendered lens of what looking watching this married couple in this drama but i i have started to sympathize with teddy even though he seemed like kind of a villain character early on i now think like this guy is working his butt off to to get everything done and i mean dude everything they do like when when he comes home and they have the cookies it is the most awkward we, we've talked about this before it's the most awkward husband wife interaction you could see in yes. the way it's filmed like straight on from that in front yeah. of the coffee table it's like these two are not in love man they're not gonna make it no couple that has drifted this far apart from one another um is gonna come back together so anyway i I I Let's, don't know. I I think I think he named it. I think uh Teddy named it something in the bedroom that night and she did not deny it. Instead, she fled the truth. Teddy and Tawny are facing the theological dilemma that is at the heart of this episode. Did you know that yeah. there was one? And it's the conversation that that Janet has with Amantha about the world. And she talks about how the world is unjust and unfair. And Tawny hears that, you know, 25% or whatever mm-hmm. of, of pregnant mothers undergo a, a miscarriage. You know, Teddy's, Teddy's wife may or may not be in love with another man. Mm-hmm. Daniel spent 18 years on death row for a crime that he gets, it gets clearer and clearer every episode he probably didn't commit. You know, I, I remember years ago doing a theology conference. Tony, I think it might have been where you and I first met at the Theology After Google conference years ago, trip down here in Southern California. And there was a theologian. We asked all these theologians different questions, and I, I can't remember exactly who it was who said it. And it could have very, could very well have been my own theology professor back in seminary. But this idea that that the life is arbitrary, but God is not. And, you know, I wonder when we when we hear what Janet says about life, when we think about this being set in 
a time and a place that's kind of deeply steeped in faith. We've already seen that in the first season. And to talk about the lack of justice and unfairness, um, I, I don't know if you heard that like in this episode or if that made you think about any sort of, as we try to approach this series spiritually, theologically, or what have you, I don't know if that, if you heard that or responded to that conversation in any type of way. Yeah. You know, I mean, I did think to myself, I know, even though the doctor says to Tawny, you know, miscarriage is really common, like up to 25% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. Um, This isn't a random, you know, uh, stroke of bad luck or whatever. This is the way the body, this is the way that nature disposes of, you know, members of our species who will struggle to survive. Like it's probably some kind of chromosomal thing. It's, it's actually a very healthy thing in a lot of cases for miscarriage. So she says that, and she completely does not uh, make any effort to, to make any kind of emotional connection with her patient. And I think Tawny then struggles with that. And of course, asked Daniel when he come, when he's standing in the, the motel doorway, is there a God? And he says, sure. You know, like such a blow off answer. It's almost like, uh, if I say yes, can we sleep together? (laughs) Yeah. But she's also asking some other questions too, right? Like, am I a bad person? Are you a bad person? Yeah. And that's interesting too, because he says, no, you're definitely not. And yes, I am. And, it, it, it betrays a little i that was some writing that i i'll be honest rang a little hollow to me because if daniel has done all this reading of philosophy and theology it, it most philosophy and most theology that you read will say there aren't there's no such thing as good people and bad people like we're all inherently then fill in the blank right we're all inherent like the most common christian way to see this is we're, mo- we're we're all inherently evil or we're all inherently depraved and it's only by God's grace that we can overcome that you know uh, so so if tawny is good and daniel is bad it's only because tawny has accepted god's grace or received god's grace or whatever that kind of thing and tony and anyways i i just thought that was a little bit like and she, is she really going to say is there a god uh, to Daniel, it, it it she here here's one thing that obviously we're seeing that's very very unhealthy is she she is so looking up to Daniel now as kind yeah. of a I don't know what as as some kind of a guru or some kind of an oracle for her not really a father figure but it's so unhealthy and he is so ill equipped to fulfill that role for her that you could just see it is just like a train wreck waiting to happen if these two get together it is just a train wreck and we're all standing there watching this train wreck you know and and we can't do anything to stop it that's how i feel about the relationship between the two of them i'm dying i am dying to learn more about tawny's backstory and I, yeah. I know we'll probably never get it. I hope we do, Tony. What to what degree? Yeah. To what degree? As a theologian, when you know, and a kind of a historian of religion, to what degree 
do you feel that Christian theology and much of Christianity is an attempt to just make, or I guess you could say this about religion in general, it's just our attempt to make sense of that arbitrariness of life, to, to try to ascribe oh, yeah. some meaning to it. It's like that's the, uh, you know, it's the, arguably. You it's like the only reason? I mean, yeah, arguably, why? that's the whole, that's the whole reason that religion exists is to give people a framework to understand their relatively inarticulable experiences. Do you feel like that cheapens faith or do you feel like that is a, I don't know how to put this, a validation of, of it because it is such a universal human experience? I guess as my life goes on, I'm I'm coming more and more to think that religion is the way people make sense of their experiences of transcendence. But you can all you could also say on the flip side, it's the way they make sense of their experience of like human frailty and the evil and the evil that humans do to one another. Again, if you put that in a theological framework, then you're you know, it, it, it makes more sense or whatever. You can make sense of it rather than just, just, just thinking like all of life is arbitrary. Um, what I can't, yeah. the, you know, what I can't square is uh, unjust suffering. So when you think about wrongful detainment, w- which happens um, so wide, is so widespread in our country, when you think about yeah. people who suffer from extreme forms of uh, racist violence, sexist violence, what have you, you know, obviously I, I don't know those experiences and um, what it takes to process that, to, to live through that. But I do think about the kind of the more universal experiences of like when, you know, my dad died, things like that. Like, I don't know that I needed faith to help me get through that. Yeah, I agree. But maybe, but Ryan, maybe 15 years earlier, you would have. Oh Lord! I mean, if that happened at. You know but what I'm that, saying. I only say that. Yeah, I only say that because you mentioned, you know, the longer you move through life, and the way you kind of change and think about those things. I mean, there's a point in my life where you know, late teens, early twenties. You're absolutely right. I would have that would have been a comfort to me and something that I probably utilized, and I mean that like as uh, as a as a tool to yeah. do that, but. You know, I think, at, and, and I'm not trying to say better or worse. I'm just, I'm just saying different. And um, you know, when I watch a series like this, and it's and just all the the baggage that comes with it, and just growing up in similar place, and you know, looking at these characters, and they're not like overtly, overtly religious. You know, it's they don't they don't wear it on their sleeve. Certainly not Janet, right. but but certainly for Amantha that. That that's where you look at something different than just losing a, a parent or a sibling. You know, she she sat for eighteen years fighting this injustice. It doesn't seem like religion helped her at all. Like it was this kind of secular, justice based organization. Charlie Chaplin even says when he's sitting outside the window in the flashback on death row, you know, I've got a letter from your sister, and Daniel says I'm surprised. I'm surprised she wrote you. She's an atheist. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Ryan, before we go, 
I think that the little lover spat between Amantha and John Stern is totally uninteresting and boring. But, uh, I mean, Amantha's little hissy fit, and it's like, good Lord, everybody knows that a lawyer is ethically bound to share a settlement offer with his client. It's not like an optional thing. I would imagine he would be disbarred if he didn't, <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly. Yes, he would be disbarred. I remember I've had a, you know, I had an attorney on retainer for 10 years. And I remember anytime something came through, she's like, this is completely ridiculous and we're not going to accept it. But I'm bound to tell you that their offer, divorce, you know, money, custody, whatever offer is, blah, 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 blah. But no way we would ever take that. Okay. If, of course. Oh, my God. So it's just Amantha being like, she she's so uh, immature. It just really frustrates me but this idea of banishment is i don't even know fascinating it'd be be interesting to have a lawyer on here and see if it's even legal i'm sure they did their research i did a quick i did a quick google search so i'm i feel like i'm a qualified attorney now so (laughs) and he's like like a like a, a a republican as an epidemiologist so i feel like uh yeah i looked it up is banishment legal it is constitutional, but it's often used in cases of sex offense, like for a sex offender. Oh, yeah. Well, here's what here here's my main takeaway from this banishment idea is again how selfish and narcissistic Amantha is. Because she doesn't see it as like, Daniel, you get freedom, you get to go move to another state, hit the reset button and start your life over again. She instead is like, well, what about Christmas? Could you come home for my birthday? Like, it, she, she sees it through how it's going to affect her, not as a potential for Daniel to have a, a new lease on life. Like, she could also move out of the small town in Georgia that she lives in and doesn't even seem to like very much. So uh, that was my takeaway from the banishment. And and it was interesting. Again, a lot of cliffhangers in this episode. But for John Stern to end the episode by saying, I'm going to advise him not to take the deal, which means we're going to trial, which, you know, might might consume the better part of the the remaining two seasons of rectify. That's how I took the idea of banishment, but there are maybe what you're getting at is there are some kind of, you know, a little bit of like theological overtones uh, to it as well. Like it's kind of old Testament justice a little bit. We, it was the first thing I thought of because we've talked about scapegoat in this podcast before and, and also thinking about this idea of justice of thinking about the arbitrariness of life and also just having really never seen that punishment in a legal drama before. Right. And, and yeah. we talk, we joke about all these other legal shows uh, uh, over which this series stands, but, you know, banishment's never in there, but it fits. It's so perfect for the, for the exact reasons you're talking about. I didn't quite think about it uh, in terms of Amantha's selfishness or the way that she was responding to it. Because Amy looked at me and said, well, they can go visit him. 
Like you yeah. can even stay in Georgia. I love the way that Daniel talked about this one play. He 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 can't be banished from every county, but he gets he's he's probably he can't out be of banished the from the whole state. Yeah, but he can be banished by counties, and he's so all but they one. left one county open that he and can you know it's probably in, just in the ass end of nowhere. But still, like I, I agree with you completely. I mean, it, it is an opportunity for Daniel to hit the reset button. He could still be nearby, and but I'll tell you. It's in this episode, part of taking that plea deal and banishment means he has to confess to a crime that he probably did not commit. Yeah. And I think that is what unnerves and her heart. I think that's ultimately what unnerves Amantha mm-hmm. and and is frustrating for the for us viewers. Right. To say, yeah, it's a reset button, but it's a reset button that comes at a great cost to Daniel's integrity and to his character, because that confession will follow him. That's what I was going to say. That's the it, the banishment isn't really the thing. It's it's the it, it's admitting that he murdered someone, which he doesn't even know if he did. He doesn't even remember if he did. That's the thing that, that that's the deal breaker. I would think is is admitting to murder, even though he's already admitted to it once. Admitting to murder is is the is the big issue. But I, I'll tell you, at the end of this episode, Senator Folks. Oh yeah. Lord have mercy. It's almost as if <laughs> he raped and murdered Hannah. Yeah. He is so bound and determined to see so evil. Daniel hang for this. Yeah. I, 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 he knows something that hopefully we will learn later. It may simply be uh his complicit complicity in in the arrest and imprisonment of an innocent person right mm-hmm. that he just he can't suffer that as a, he would lose obviously the life that he's built but we'll see i mean it's it's there's a severity um in his conviction that at least makes me think he was there that night even though he probably wasn't yeah 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 that's yeah. right yeah well 210 it Promises to be explosive. Uh, we hope to Tony, I, have a. It's the rare. Yeah. It's the only instance this this so far in this podcast where I've watched ahead just for because we had to for logistic reasons. But wow, I can't wait to. Talk. I don't know when you're going to watch it. Hopefully in the next day or two, so we can chat about it. But yep. Well. Wow! 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 I'm looking yep. forward to it, and I'm. Yeah. Uh, I hope all our listeners are as well. So thanks for listening. We're approaching the halfway point in our 30-episode journey to rectify. Crazy. Thanks for sticking with us, everybody. And we will talk to you next week about Rectify 210. Until then, stay safe. Take care. Wear a mask. 